Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, I am thrilled and excited to introduce our wonderful and fantastic guest today, Dr. Bernice Pesco-Salido. She is a distinguished professor of sociology at Indiana University and a director of the Indiana Consortium for Mental Health Services Research. She has done so much research in the field of stigma, particularly around mental health stigma, both in the United States and internationally in dozens of countries. And she also is an expert in suicide research. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Carmen. It's just great to be here and to see you, even if it's only virtually. I think we've met each other at NIH meetings or the White House meeting. I, I know we've met each other, but I feel like I wish I could meet I, you again in person. Yes, that would be great. Well, hopefully some Fogarty will do something or this new thing that Gregory sent us yes. will bring us together. That would, that would be, be post-COVID. Um, yes, <laughs> so, post-COVID. So I want to know if I'm in an elevator with you. Imagine it's we're wearing masks or it's pre-COVID. And I asked you, we're going up a couple of floors. Please tell me about your, your work that you do around stigma around mental health. How do you describe that? Well, usually what I say is that, you know, I'm really interested in the multiple hits that people who have mental health problems face. We all know that there are issues in trying to find the right treatments for mental illness and mental health, but that's not what I do. What I do is try to understand something that's equally damaging to people who face those illnesses, and that's the prejudice and discrimination mm -hmm. that they face or their family faces or even people who work in psychiatry face when they tell them that this is either what they have or what they do and people kind of back away from them a little bit mm. um, or in the long run exclude them from activities or other things that are really critical to people's well-being. I'm so happy we have you here to learn from today. I'm going to ask you another question. Okay. You're in Indiana. Yes, I am. I've never been to Indiana. <laughs> I don't even know where it is on the map. I'm from Canada, so I'm probably excused a little bit, but I really need to figure out where, where exactly you are. But I'm going to show up at your house with my time machine right now. Okay. And in my time machine, there's room for physical distancing. There's two separate little okay. places in the time plexiglass. machine. Plexiglass. Yeah, there's a plexiglass in the time <laughs> machine. And I'm going to say, take me back to the time and place where you decided, oh, I want to start thinking about stigma around mental health. Yeah. Where would that, we go? I mean, we would go back to about 1994. 
And I had been doing my research really is I'm a social network person, network mm. scientist. And I've really been interested in social action. How do why do humans behave the way they do? And for me, the really critical point was how do people respond to the onset of illness, right? Mm. And I had been studying pathways to care. And uh, I was really reacting to the dominant models of the time that said that when people get sick, they do a cost-benefit analysis of whether or not they have insurance, whether or not, you know, they could take the time off, you know, how they feel. And those are very nice, clean, well-developed models. Mm. And they fit nicely with survey research and they fit nicely with multivariate regression models. But, and I actually cut my teeth on those models and that's how I got into this. But after a while, I started saying to myself, I don't know anybody who makes their healthcare decisions that way. Mm. You know, it's, there's nothing that interferes with cognitive processing more than illness and mm. certainly nothing more than mental illness, right? And so I started thinking about, as a sociologist, the idea that really what's going on is people bounce off one another and travel pathways to care. And thinking about not individualistic approaches, but really a social network or community embedded approach to understanding pathways to care. You know, why is it that it takes individuals five to 10 years from the time they start experiencing mental health symptoms to getting into mm. treatment, right? And so um, I developed this model called the network episode model that was a less clean, messier, but more realistic way to think about those pathways to care and to even suggest that there were multiple pathways to care. And in mental health, at least in the United States, we know that one clear pathway to care is through coercion. Whether that's being picked up by the police, um, certainly nothing more relevant than right now, or basically your mother just hassling you and nagging you till you go to the doctor. Mm -hmm. Or one of the things that my colleague Deb Umberson at University of Texas has shown is that, you know, what affects men's health is not just having a wife or partner that, you know, supports them and loves them, but they need one that also nags them, mm -hmm. nags them regarding their health behavior. <laughs> Right. So this idea that social networks are really the mechanism underlying many forms of the translation of symptoms into utilization of services, what I was interested in. Mm. So I did that for. So where were you? So we're in the time machine and we're yeah. in 1994. I'm, I'm in 1989 when I'm thinking about. Oh, this, okay, right? okay. Okay. Where so are I'm you not, in 89? Are you in so 89? I'm thinking I love these models. I've cut my teeth on them, but they don't work. Ah, okay. So, but about 19, by 1994, I've done the Indianapolis Network Mental Health Study, which has provided the empirical evidence of different pathways to care and the importance of social networks in structuring those pathways. But then I start thinking to myself, and this is why I picked 1994, I start thinking to myself, but what the heck is in those networks? Like, what are people saying? And as a classically trained medical sociologist, I immediately go to Irving Goffman and stigma, yeah. right? Uh -huh. And so I say to myself, well, what do we know about stigma at this point in time? And I look at the literature and there's just nothing. I mean, there's a lot, but it's very early on around the time that labeling theory was developed and Goffman was talking about asylums and stigma. But I'm thinking to myself, well, 
you know, in classic, maybe female academic fashion, maybe I'm missing something. So I say to myself, well, I'm a network person. I'm going to call the person who is the most knowledgeable about stigma in the United States. So I call Bruce Link ah. at Columbia University. And I go, Bruce, this is like a stupid question, but I'm trying to find what we know about the stigma of mental illness now. <laughs> and in particular, I'm really interested in what has been done following Shirley Starr's uh, classic 1950 study, which is the most famous purple mimeo ever produced, uh, never published officially, that was the first national study of stigma towards mental illness in the United ah. States. And he says, you're not wrong. There hasn't been one. Wow. And my response to that was, this can't be. We can't, this, we have to fix this. Yeah. And so Bruce and I, um, started on a journey to do a national study of stigma toward mental illness and got, I always say stigma research is stigmatized because we went to the National Institute of Mental Health and they said, uh, yeah, we know stigma exists, but we don't care about doing the studies. We just want interventions. Ah. And I, I'm not an interventionist. And then I would go to places like hospitals and talk to physicians and their response was oh well hasn't stigma dissipated in the United States <laughs> and I'd be like okay in my in my Indianapolis network mental health study I spent uh, about three months in uh, observation in the two largest psychiatric units mm. the two largest hospitals in Indianapolis and I didn't see any evidence of stigma dissipating mm -hmm. so I decided that what I would do uh, is see if Bruce and I could get this going. And so the best uh, national monitor of American beliefs and behaviors and attitudes is the General Social Survey. Been going since 1972, done, funded by the National Science Foundation, located at University of Chicago. And we wrote a proposal that was approved by the Overseers Board. And they said, oh, but by the way, modules have to be, you know, they have to be funded. We already heard that NIMH was not interested, which I found preposterous. We went hat in hand everywhere until the MacArthur Foundation said, oh. we'll give you $100,000 to do this study. Okay, is that not the genius people? So they thought you were genius. This is amazing. <laughs> no, they didn't. They thought they have a, you know, foundations operate in a very different way. But at that time, they had just done a very important set of, they called them networks, which I find interesting, but they had the, the MacArthur Lawn Mental Health Network. Wow. So uh, it was people like John Monahan, you know, and people who really understood a lot of the stigma around mental illness so that they had, they actually had their foot in mental health, which many foundations do not. Mm. And they could talk to people who, you know, they talked to their own grantees, you know, who they consider their geniuses. And they said, well, is it worth, you know, giving these people $100,000? Because we only asked for exactly what we needed to get on the survey. Nothing wow. for us, nothing for anybody. Just give us the 100K so we can convince you know, NORC and uh, the General Social Survey to give us these 14 and a half minutes, right? So they finally did. 
And I know that they called people, you know, that you and I would, well, I would know as a mental health researcher and said, are these people any good? (laughs) So we got the 100,000. And then the the next barrier was that what we proposed to the General Social Survey was going past the standard methodology. The standard methodology, and Bruce really had done so much of this work, was a standard, um, you know, either social distance measure or he had developed this really sophisticated response to mental illness uh, scale. And I was just not happy with that. And the reason I wasn't happy with it was because I had two problems. The first problem was I am a mental health services researcher. And when you say to people, uh, would you allow somebody with mental illness to uh, marry into your family, right? The first problem is, is that you don't know what the reference that they hold in their head is about mental illness. Are they thinking Mm. about the kid down the street with ADHD? Are they thinking about, you know, their depressed coworker? Are they thinking about the homicidal maniac in many movies? So I wanted to move away from mental illness as the category. And then as a health services researcher, when you ask that question, you've stripped the study out of the possibility of understanding whether or not people recognize these these conditions in the community. And that's really critical to understanding stigma. It's like when they see somebody acting in a particular way, do they understand that that is mental illness? What do they think is going on? So can I ask you right now yeah. the first stigma question that I... Yes. Because I think, you're, I think what you're just about to say is... I'm getting there. Why should we care about stigma around mental illness? Should we just be caring about the mental illness or caring about, I don't know, something else? What's the big deal? Like, so, well, so you're saying that do these people in a community... No, yeah, do these people in the community? Yeah, what is what do we know about mental health literacy? Literally, would be the technical mm-hmm. way to say that. But do people problem recognize? Like, do they know what's going on? Uh, you know, that I think is a really important question because, you know, the major tagline since World War II, at least in the states, had been, if people understand that these are mental illnesses like diabetes or cancer then the stigma will fall away. Mm. And I think that that's what a lot of people believed in the medical field, that that Americans really were getting more knowledgeable and therefore stigma would dissipate. But I didn't, I didn't believe that. And the other thing was that the research on the effects of stigma, I mean, people, so the Surgeon General in the United States finally did a Surgeon General's report on mental illness in 1999, which to me is an unobtrusive measure of stigma because the first Surgeon General's report was in the 60s on heart disease. Wow. Right? It took them that long to get to mental illness. And what they say in the Surgeon General's report is that stigma is the foremost obstacle to recovery. Mm. And that the studies had shown and people had said in their own words that fighting the stigma was as damaging, if not more, than fighting the diseases themselves. So it matters because people, it, it's getting in the way of people getting treatment for their treatment. mental health. And you're saying it's also getting in the way of us doing research on mental health. <laughs> like it's even a barrier to getting information. It's, um, it's also, a, it's a barrier to them being welcomed back. You know, it's not like 
you know, the breast cancer women, you know, they celebrate pink is everywhere, right? What people with mental illness face when they come back into the community or they say they've had treatment is rejection. The most damning thing are the studies that showed that people with mental illnesses have life expectancy anywhere from nine to, to 16 years less than people who have other illnesses. Wow. And a lot of people had evidence that really that this isn't just about treatments, it's really about the isolation that people face, the rejection that people face in the community that affects their health in the long run. Even the rejection in you know, studies done of ICUs, intensive care units, where people who needed intensive care were shipped back to the psychiatric unit or shipped from the ER to the psychiatric units because people, the providers didn't want to deal with people with mental illness. Well, you have schizophrenia and you have a heart condition. Okay, well, somebody will come visit you in the psychiatric unit. And life expectancy is cut short for people with mental illness. I want to ask you a question because you said that there is this idea that people had information about mental health and they thought, oh, that stigma must reduce, be reduced. And you said no. So what I'm kind of getting from you is that the, the stigma is deeper than just misinformation. Yes. So what is it rooted in? Like, why do we stigmatize people with mental illness? I think at least in the United States. And the person, you know, that is your colleague, you know that there's only one chair of stigma on the entire globe. And it's held by Heather Stewart in Canada. I don't know her. Yeah, she's a she's <laughs> wonderful, and she great. has she has this great uh, distinction she makes between, you know, the problems that result from mental health literacy and the problems that result from prejudice and discrimination. And you know, we finally did the study. We did. We were able to do. We were able to do the study in 1996 for the first time, and then. You know, after the Surgeon General's report and a bunch of other things, uh, we actually got funding from the National Institute of Mental Health to do a follow-up um, in 20, uh, 2006. And we were able to show in that study that while Americans have become much more mental health literate, they could recognize mental health more than they could in 1996. They attributed it to neurobiology and not to bad character or whatever. And yet there was no correlation between their scientific belief and their mental health literacy and how much they stigmatized the people in our study. So, so what's it rooted in then? I think in the United States, it's rooted in fear. Because the, the fear, the, you know, America, unlike Canada, has violence, criminalization, much more on the front burner than you do in Canada. And our most recent follow-up in 2018 showed that the one place where stigma is getting worse is for people with schizophrenia, they're described meeting criteria for schizophrenia in our study, that stigma has actually gone up significantly. Wow. That's where, where we've also been able to show that stigma toward depression has been reduced for the first time in a national study. We're showing, you know, a place that didn't have a national campaign, right? They've shown reductions in England as well, but they've had that 18 million pound campaign. Yeah. And they have the royal, you know, time to change. And they've had the, the royals coming in with headstrong. But in the yeah. United States... We have seen the first drop, significant drop. And that's, and that's not equal across the different um, mental health challenges. No. So my second question is, okay. 
what you're saying is also really, I just want to say it's close to my heart because when I was 19, I moved to Toronto to go to University of Toronto for my undergrad. And I got a job as a support worker in a group home for men diagnosed with schizophrenia released from prison. And yeah. I loved it. I, yeah. I had the most amazing experience there. And so I feel like I know all of those people as individuals and yes. learned how to play chess even though no one would ever finish a game with me. I like, you know, I use my Euchre skills. Like, I you know I'm yes. able to eat a lot of good food, you know, and, and I really got to know people in a way that I'm not afraid. And I, I really wish that there was that same level of, of understanding. The full humanity. Exactly. The full humanity. People can still have a sense of humor and life stories and adventures and, you know, all of these, these different things. I don't know if you've read The Collected Schizophrenias. It's a really wonderful no. book of poetry by, uh, I'll link it. Send to me you. a link. Yes, yeah. send me a link. Yeah. Uh, no, it so, sounds great. When I first wanted to study this pathway to care stuff, I submitted an application to National Institute of Mental Health and I said I wanted to study college students. And we can get back to that later if you want. But I wanted to study college students because they had all the characteristics of of that could trigger a mental health problem, right? They were leaving home for the first time. Their networks were changing. They were encountering levels of expectation that they had not before. And so it seemed to me to be a really good place to study it. I, they didn't even read my first application, right? Mm -hmm. And they came back and they said, we love your theory and we love your idea, but people, college students don't have mental health problems. And I was like, what? Yeah, you know, so now we've gone, we've gone full circle on that and we know that that's not true and that's sort of where my work has sort of been heading recently. But, you know, that's where even the National Institute of Mental Health was in, you know, 1989. They were like, oh, yeah, no, you, if you want to do this, you have to study people with serious mental illness. And I was like, oh, oh. because as an American growing up in this society, I had all the stigma baggage of everybody else. Mm -hmm. And I had to think long and hard before I resubmitted that study to do a study of people with serious mental illness. And then I had the same experience you did, which is I loved being in those units. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, people were just gracious and lovely. And you could see all the variation in human of humanity in there, you know. And it's why where stigma interventions have gone is back to Alport's ideas in 19 was it 46 of, you know, contact is a very powerful lever of reducing stigma because if you don't have the contact, you only have the stereotype. But when you know the people, and that's why there's been an emphasis in many advocacy groups of focusing on first person stories. So that if you can't have, you know, face-to-face -face contact, you can have virtual contact. And then when you see that person's full humanity, then you realize that this is just like having diabetes or, you know, arthritis or something else, you know, that if we can put more resources into mental health, it, because we're, you know, according to the global burden of disease, you know, depression alone is second in the global burden. Yeah. But I would say with regard to resources, we're probably second from the bottom. Mm. Uh, and that to me is again, an un unobtrusive or as Mark Hatzenbuehler now, the new word is the structural stigma, right? But, you know, it's an unobtrusive measure of stigma to not have a commensurate match between the scope of the problem and the resources devoted to it. That is so true. I want you to take us to an individual level. Okay. I want you to tell us what does stigma look like from a moment someone wakes up 
Could you just lead the listener who might not know much about mental health stigma? What does it look like in a day-to-day situation for somebody? Okay, so I think if we're talking about somebody with serious mental illness, they may wake up and they wake up alone because the probability of being involved in family or being involved in uh, you know, a housing situation that isn't a group home is much lower because there's a rejection and a fear of people with mental illness to li- have them be life partners or in any kind of communal situation. And then maybe they go to work mm-hmm. or maybe they don't because people with serious mental illness have a harder time finding work. And the other thing is there is clear in disincentive in the United States, because if you get SSI, uh, which is a form of public insurance for people who have disabilities, then you can only have a certain amount of income. Mm-hmm. And so Sue Estroff at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, wrote this classic, lovely book called Making It Crazy that shows how hard it is for people to balance getting back on their feet with SSI and then being able to transition off of it. Um, Mm. Those two things in the United States sort of butt heads. So if they do go to work, chances are, if it isn't obvious to people and it hasn't been revealed somehow, they probably have never disclosed that they have a serious mental illness. Mm. So they're hiding it. They're hiding it, yes. And they hide it because of the stigma. And Mm. if they, they have to then endure people not being sensitive to the issue and so they wouldn't say that to somebody if they knew that they had a serious mental illness but if they don't you know in the united states we also throw around terms like psycho crazy Mm -hmm. uh you know aspie even you know very lightly you know like that person's a psycho or i'm feeling very adhd today or my ocd is getting hold of me totally So they have to endure that kind of thing. And then if it becomes known later that they do have a serious mental illness, let's say they have to take a couple of weeks off or something, then they come back and people are then ashamed that they have probably stepped on that person's toes. And so that alienates them at work. Also, our studies show that the level, the greater the level of intimacy of the contact, the higher the level of rejection. Wow. Um, So, for example, yeah, they should be able to work if they're qualified, but no, they shouldn't supervise other people, right? Or the child study that we did that showed that, yeah, sure, those kids can be in my kid's class. They can even be on their sports team, but I don't want them to be friends with them, with that kid. Wow. So there is this gradient of intimacy as well, which again, you know, just, you know, reverberates in the isolation that people have to deal with. And then again, whether it's it's disclosed or not disclosed, you've either got the whole problem with, you know, the stress of hiding it, or mm-hmm. if there, it's known, then everybody goes out after work and has a drink, that person may or may not be included. It depends on whether or not there's somebody who is knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you an example from my own life of how this can work in terms of stigma. So I have a child of difference and, um, you know, it's a complicated situation, but when we go to the doctor, to the pediatrician, I don't know if they thought it was Munchausen syndrome by proxy or whether or not they just didn't know anything, but our situation and my son's healthcare changed dramatically when there happened to be a nurse practitioner 
in the practice who understood this complicated condition called pandas, which is, it's about, you know, how behavior spirals out of control when they get a strep infection, right? Oh. It's a very complicated thing and very rare. It's, I don't think it's rare. It's just that people don't know about it. But, you know, I think we were often at arm's length, but when this nurse came in and said, oh yeah, you know, my niece, right? The practice was really accepting and open, opened up. But that was after our second pediatrician. One day we happened to go to the pediatrician and we went in and just happened to run into my best friend and her son who was in Joe's class and their friends. But here's the thing, I'm a Italian from the East Coast and my son is like five, five right? And my friend Donna, her son is a college basketball player. And even at 14 years old, he was like 6'5". So we go in and I see the pediatrician looks at Eric, looks at my son, Joe, looks at Eric, looks at Joe. And when we get into the office, into the meeting, she says, I think I'm going to do a bone scan, right, of your son. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, I've been around the block. I did this research before I had my son. So I was very well prepared to raise a child of difference. But I knew that she was saying that there's something wrong with the way that this mom is raising this child Mm -hmm. because he shouldn't be so little, right? So I said, you know, but I now, you know, having now been doing this research for a while, I said, oh, and not even thinking. I said, well, you don't have to do that. I said, you'll find out that, you know, he has delayed development and his bone scan will show you he's about 11 and a half years old in terms of bone growth. And she didn't say anything. She just left the room and we were there for a long time and she came back in and she didn't say anything. All of a sudden she started treating us the same. And I said to her, you did the bone scan, didn't you? Like, this is what I'm talking about, Munchausen syndrome by proxy, was kind of like what her hypothesis, I think. She never said, but I said, so I said, you did the bone scan anyway, didn't you? And she said, yeah. And I said, and you found him to be how old? And she said, 11 and a half. And I said, this is our last visit. Wow. And we changed pediatricians. So that's the kind of thing that people who aren't armed with all of the stuff that I knew because of my research that had nothing to do with any part of my life until I had my son. I came armed with that. And I also, you know, had the resources to change pediatricians and to do, you know, to have thrown things at my son, you know, that he doesn't think he's different than anybody else. And he's had a really good life and being in computers, he's just like a big nerd and everybody loves that now. So, you know, the coincidence of changing culture in which being a nerd is kind of good, right? And having the social class resources to be able to do what was necessary and having the knowledge to understand stigma that changed the trajectory of that child's life. That is such a powerful story. In my class today, we were talking about epistemic injustice and testimonial injustice where people are not believed by an identity or a category that's attributed to them and how that's very true when it comes to mental health issues and, and how that's intersecting with gender and race and class and how some people are not viewed as as holding knowledge of their own life and their own experience. And that's so true when it comes to mental health issues. And I really think that that's a manifestation of stigma or reproduces stigma or something. I think you talk to anybody with uh, a family member or themselves who has experienced a mental illness and how they've dealt with it. And 
you won't find these stories to be, they're very common. These stories are very common. So been there, done that. And, you know, it changed my research. Uh, having a child of difference, I wrote this piece once and in the about this model and how the model also needed to start integrating biology. And in the footnote to the piece, I acknowledge my son who taught me more about biology than I thought I'd ever need to know. <laughs> uh, so you're so wonderful. I'm, I'm so grateful that you were on this show. I have one last stigma question. Okay. Okay. What can the listeners do? Imagine a range of listeners. Some listeners are walking their dogs. Some folks are riding the bus. You know, maybe we're driving in the car. What can they do to challenge and to reduce stigma around mental illness? How can I, we be part yeah. of the solution? I think that they can include. It's about inclusion. And again, you know, being an academic, not really being that, I'm sort of really in the academic culture in the ivory tower and wasn't really that much of engaged in the community. And so one of the nice things about Bloomington, Indiana is that all the kids go to public school, which I love. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that I've always stayed here is that all the kids are in the public school. And I didn't have a clue, right? I didn't have a clue. And I was a, you know, late mother. You know, I didn't have my son till I was 39. And when my son was in first grade or second grade, I got a call from another mother and said, um, we're starting a Cub Scout troop. And, you know, everybody in the class, all the boys in the class are in it except Joe. And we'd like Joe to join. And I was like, sure. I had no idea that that was happening. But this mom, who turns out to be my best friend, Donna, with the son, college basketball player, Eric, always had the mentality of inclusion. And she wanted to make sure that I knew that this existed and that my son was welcome. Well, that's how we ended up being best friends. And after about a year or two, she decided she really didn't like this Cub Scout motherhood stuff. And I became the den mother. And I... <laughs> And I became the den mother because I knew that it was critical for my child to be included. And the way I could guarantee that mm -hmm. was to not let this thing fall apart. I was her assistant for two years and then we switched roles and she became my assistant in the den and it was great. And I used all of my sociological and social science skills in that venue, but also in the schools to make sure that stigma was as low as possible. And one of the things that I worry about is when parents say that they don't want their child to be assessed or evaluated because then if they know that the kid is different, that they will exclude him or her. You know what? Kids are sharp. They already know which kids are different. Mm -hmm. And so you need to not ignore it. You need to take it head on and do what you can as a parent, especially if you have the resources. And if you don't have the resources, step in anyway and make sure that all children are included, mm -hmm. even if they have special needs or special quirks or whatever. I think it's really about being inclusive and understanding that, that the stereotype that we hold in the United States, the stereotype of dangerousness, has been shot down over and over again by the mm -hmm. data. And in the U.S. with our, you know, not lately, although knock on wood, uh, uh, you know, our high profile of school shootings, that the National Academy of Sciences report shows that that is not the underlying issue yeah. with these children. Uh, Catherine Newman's book, Rampage, is so clear on that. That was commissioned by the National Academy of Sciences. And it, it's so clear. It's not that some of the kids weren't troubled. They're all troubled, 
right? I mean, if you're going to shoot up your school, you've got troubles. But the idea that that was lodged in mental illness has just been shot down. That's so great. I, I, think it's, I think it's just trying to uh, see what you can do as an individual to make sure that children who are, are different are included and celebrated if they have particular skills. And again, I was lucky in this is that my child turned out to be, you know, just his brain is wired is the same way that people who developed the computers were wired. Yeah. And while, while he couldn't do his damn math minute, <laughs> he could help every kid in that class learn how to use computers. So I think everybody has something to contribute. And if we can focus on that and focus on inclusion and the strengths of diversity and the richness that diversity brings, you know, to life, I think we can find a place for everybody. I love that. And even what you mentioned earlier about the workplace, you know, just inviting everybody, like creating a community where everybody is at least invited. You know, many people don't want to come, but at least, right. you, at least you invite people and that, that door is open for people to, to feel like they're part of, of something. I will say one thing, which is that there's a category of people I call bomb throwers. And that isn't literal, but it's, it means people who's, I don't know this, and I'm not a psychologist, so I have no idea whether it's their personality or their experiences or just their way of seeking attention, but people who, who seek to break up groups, you know, or just be so obnoxious as to be involved <laughs> in the dissolving groups, I think you can exclude them. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> You're so funny. All right. So now we get to... The okay. exciting okay. wild card questions. Okay. Where they All get right. to know I'm... they get to know the real you. Okay. Oh boy. That's scary. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, well, I'm ready. You ready? Yeah. Wild card number one. What are you binging on Netflix right now? Or Hulu or Amazon? I just well I well right now actually I'm way behind everybody else. Right now I am doing Shits Creek. I love Shits uh, Creek. Every yeah. episode people we go on and I beg Dan Levy to please be a guest. Dan, we'd love you to be a, a podcast guest. He hasn't responded yet. Really? <laughs> what season okay. are you on? Uh, I'm only on season two because oh, I I have a thing for um historical period dramas that involve at least romance and science fiction as well as history. So I am a huge, huge, I was at one point seriously addicted, but I am a huge fan of Outlander. I never seen that. Oh, oh, whew, you have to see it. It's got everything. It's got <laughs> everything. So anyway, we're waiting for season six, I think, but it turns out that my addiction is not only because I just love the show, but it happened at a point in my life where I was going to get addicted to something because my husband passed away suddenly. Oh, I'm and sorry. yeah, and I don't know, I just became addicted to the show. And when I get addicted to something, get out of my way. <laughs> Because I managed to get myself to the second season premiere in New York City. Wow. And I met the whole cast. Awesome. And then the next year, I picked up, over about an 18-month period, I picked up two speaking gigs in Scotland and went to all the <laughs> filming sites with my colleague, my Icelandic colleague. 
Yeah. So, yeah. So I would say that I, I lean most toward uh, historical period dramas like Outlander, Medici, Versailles. Those are like my faves. Yeah. But I also love 90 Day Fiance. I've never seen that. Oh, uh, it's really, it's something else. And Married at First Sight. No, I, I, I'm with you with the Schitt's Creek. I lo- I'm even like going to start it over again. I don't, I don't know. I don't know all the other ones. Just before this, I binged How to Get Away with Murder with Viola Davis. Oh, I wanted to watch that Oh, one. she is she is spectacular. Plus, she's from Rhode Island, my home state. And uh. it's a very small state. It's the smallest state in the, in the United States. And everybody who comes from there, even if you leave there, and I haven't lived there since I was 19, we all have this camaraderie so i uh you know i had to watch that because she's my rhode island so you've given me a lot of ideas okay i have two more quick walkers okay second walker question you can go for dinner anywhere in the world imagine there's no covid with anyone you want living or dead who would you take and where would you go i would go to carmine's in new york on 57th street uh 45th 45th street i've never been there Okay, it's, you know what, there are people who probably would think it's very working class. I'm very proud of my working class roots. Yeah. But one thing we don't have in the Midwest, I think we do in Chicago, but certainly not in Bloomington, we don't have good Italian food, um, which has been a benefit in the sense that I had to learn how to do, like, before my mother passed at 98, Every time I would go home back to Rhode Island and she would do a recipe, I would like try to catch it before she threw it in the pot because she had no recipes. And so I have all of her recipes and I can do it myself. But when I go to New it's this very loud, there's a knockoff of it. Uh, what's the name? Maggiano's. Have you ever heard of Maggiano's? No, but I, I'm gonna, I love New York so much. I'm going to go to Carmine's. Oh, go to, yeah, go to Carmine's. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Carmine's is uh, like... It's like family style. It's big. It's noisy. You know, it's always full. And the bread is uh, really unbelievably good. Um, it's not It's not haute cuisine. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, I love, I love Carmine's. And I would go, I think I would go, uh, which is where I always go with some friends and my son. Nice. We go, whenever we go to New York, we always go to Carmine's. The so, next time you go... Take yeah. a selfie. And okay. when we can go, we, we were going to New York every December just yeah. for a vacation, just to like wander around the, the markets and and we would look for new restaurants or like just look for restaurants new to us. So, okay, whoever gets there first, probably you because I'm in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to be in touch with you about that. Okay, the okay. last question I have. Is there any words of wisdom or advice or quotations that have helped you that you want to share with the listener? I think the most important thing is to get people to understand that we change the world by linking arms. Oh, I love and that. Whether that's, I, I, you know, of course I'm a network researcher, you know, it's like, I remember <laughs> this, this faculty member when I was a little junior faculty person who didn't really like me very much. And um, he said to somebody, you know, for Bernice, networks is not an idle pursuit. And he, I think he meant it really negatively, like it's, you know, very careerist or something. But literally, I see the world in network terms. I see the good and the bad happening through interaction. 
I see things like, you know, as Bill Wilson did that the, you know, his famous book on the underclass was really about the networks that had been cut off for people in places of concentrated disadvantage, how they'd been cut off from employment, how they'd been cut off from other opportunities, and that those network ties had been severed. And that's part of what results in persistent poverty. And a lot of people who do social networks are people who think of networks as very purposive. You know, I don't see networks as purposive. I see them as endemic to human life. And so anything that surrounds the notions of integration or communality or connectedness, like I could have never been happier than when the CDC in the United States decided that in their studies of suicide, that their new emphasis was going to be connectedness. Mm. I was like, yes, I guess that's it. The other thing is my old Italian grandmother who spoke English you know, they stopped speaking English when my grandfather retired from the railroad, very traditionally East Coast Italian. <laughs> she used to just say to me, open the eyes, open the eyes. Uh-huh. And I think that that's my one skill as an academic. I think I'm a pretty good observer. Oh, that's so. amazing. You're so awesome. <laughs> I don't know about that. but no, you know. I write down these words of wisdom on my, my whiteboard beside my desk. <laughs> I was like, this is great. Thank you. You got to do this one with an Italian accent, though. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I have to listen. There's like YouTubes where you can listen to people from a place say yes. words in the there's yeah anyways my mom's from the north of england so it has a geordie accent from newcastle so we were Uh, listening to that and it was quite fun thank you so much i love what you said you said we changed the world by linking arms i'm like oh i just that's so beautiful yeah i you know margaret mead once said that you know never question that a small group of people can change the world they always do but you've got to be you've got to have your arms linked oh you have just been such a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for well, coming I, thank on. Thank you so much for inviting me. And it was such a pleasure to meet you virtually. And I do think we met at the Fogarty Foundation briefly. Yeah, I think, I think it was like in this. Uh, yeah. It was, yeah, in... Before the BMC medicine issue. Yes, it was it was Bethesda and, and outside of DC, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. Yeah. Well, we'll meet again. Yes, and I, I either want to come to you and you're going to cook Italian... Yes. Oh, we're going to go to New York. We're going to go to Carmine's. Yes. Uh, the, one, the one thing we didn't get to talk about is, you know, I, I work with, um, in my advocacy work or in my change the world work, I work with uh, Bring Change to Mind, which is an organization founded by Glenn Close. Oh. And so uh, what we'll do is we'll go to Carmine's and then, you know, go see a Broadway play. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. <laughs> and I'm not saying that you're not ever going to come back on this podcast. We might okay. have you for a round two, around okay. the role of, I really think let's talk more about social networks as being the solution because I would I really want to learn more from you. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it and I hope to see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. No, I'm just-